ever since I changed over to the financial media side, I've heard this straw man argument, which is, well, you're smart enough to do this yourself. Duh. Of course you are. Yes. Right. You are. It's not about being smart enough. And you're also emotional enough to mess it up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> we all have blind spots. Like surround yourself with really smart people and still know what you're doing. You cannot abdicate. If you abdicate, you're messing it up. But you can delegate the crap that people with time and expertise can do quicker than you. And you'll have people to fight with you about what you want. You want people to fight with you. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Joe Saul Sehai, creator and co-host of The Stacking Benjamin Show and co-author of Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. Joe's money expert story includes being a former financial advisor of 16 years and representing American Express and Ameriprise in the media. His real story is how he was a money disaster in his early life and then pulled his financial house into order and left his business at the age of 40 to pursue an entirely different path. Joe was the money man at Detroit Television WXYZ-TV, appearing twice weekly. His advice has appeared in many places, including the LA Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Detroit News, and Baltimore Sun newspapers. He has also appeared online in more than 200 different places, including CNBC.com and TheWallStreetJournal.com. The Stacking Benjamin Show was called the best personal finance podcast by Kiplinger. Lifehacker listed the show as one of the top 10 of 2021. Joe and the Stacking Benjamins team have won five Plutus Awards and the Academy of Podcasters Best Business Podcast Award, beating well-known shows like The Tim Ferriss Show, How I Built This, and Gimlet's Startup. The Stacking Benjamin Show is created in Joe's mom's basement in Texarkana, Texas, where Joe lives with his spouse, Cheryl, and their cat, Cooper. Listen in for some great takeaways about Joe's journey to creating one of the most successful podcasts to date and how following his passions have led to greater success. Well, hello, buddy. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with another money person, believe it or not. Yes, it's the Midland Money Mindset. We have Joe Saul Sehai, creator and co-host of The Stacking Benjamin Show and the co-author of Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Dude, I finally made it onto the Midland <laughs> Money Mindset Show. I'm here to announce my retirement that's all I need. I mean, that's the top. Of, oh. where, where does it go from here? I where can't retire. No. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I know a lot about you. I'm hoping our listeners do too. But first thing I got to ask you is how does a guy who was an English major end up in personal finance? 
How does that happen? I had three choices, Larry, if I was going to just go with my English chops. Number one was teach other people English, right? Number two was become the world's best barista. Or number (laughs) three was become a great American author. And now I do have a book, finally, but that was a path for love. And I would, like a lot of people, never did the ROI on college. You know, my parents never went to college. So I just did what I really loved, which was English. And you know what? Still, when I became a financial planner, so to make a short story really long, here's what happened, Larry. Sure. This friend of mine that was with a big, one of the big major firms calls me one day, of course, you know, because they're recruiting tons of people. But of course. He said, and this is a direct quote. He said, we don't normally hire people like you, but I think you'd be good at this. And that was true. They don't hire creative writing majors. And the thing is that because of the fact that I didn't have a money background and because of the fact that I was struggling with a lot of the same stuff that my clients were, and because of the fact that creative writing and philosophy, while I just knocked it, really gives you this nice basis of building an argument and building a discussion and talking about things that people aren't familiar with in a way that excites them instead of boring them to tears. So in my first year as a financial advisor, who is still just messing up all my money, but I could teach you about money, I was really good at it. And I was very, very good at explaining these concepts to people because A, I didn't know them and I had to figure out a way to get into my head. And then be that English background, you know, I could creatively tell you how a mutual fund worked. (laughs) I think it's amazing. I love the way you started off because I was just talking to somebody the other day about college, right? Higher education for their kids and return on investment. And they're like, what are you talking about? Don't you send your kids wherever they want if they want to go watch a great football team? I'm like, no, that's exactly what you don't do. You figure out where they're going to be best served for the rest of their life. And quite frankly, if it's not college today, it's okay not following the predefined construct that we have that you go to high school and then end up in college. It doesn't have to work out that way for everybody. My parents, well, they didn't have any idea. And they were like a lot of parents in America where you walked in the room, Larry, and they would immediately send you out of the room because mom and dad were talking about money. So I didn't know anything about money. I didn't know anything about ROI. And I think that's most people, but I want to be different for my kids. And case in point for you, my daughter, when she was going to college, she had two things she wanted to do. One was become a journalist. And the other one was a neurosurgeon. And so my job is very different professions. Exactly. (laughs) My job as dad was not to say one of those is good or bad because there's no such thing, right? I mean, it is what it is. But my job was to define what the reality of those jobs are going to be. And because I've been doing financial media for quite a while now, so after I sold my financial planning practice at 40, it's been 14 years now I've been on the media side. I work with a lot of these journalists. I talk to them all the time. And I told Autumn, I said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with becoming a journalist. There's nothing wrong with becoming a neurosurgeon. Let's first of all, go to the Department of Labor website and look up what these people make. Journalists at the time, a few years ago, my daughter's 27 now, journalists made like $35,000 to $45,000, was going to work 80 hours a week, was going to hustle because there's so much competition and because you're trying to, you just have to hustle a lot. I love these people. Especially with the news cycle these days, right? 24-7, 365. Feed the beast, baby, right? And does it make it bad? But that's the reality. You are going to struggle with money. You're going to struggle with your career. And if you can climb that mountain, you can get to a hundred thousand, 120, maybe $150,000, but you really kind of got to create your own thing now Mm -hmm. to get above that ceiling. And so then we looked at neurosurgeon, you know, you go for a ton more school, but out the door, you're making 280, 
and then <laughs> and then it goes up from there. So she said, okay, all right, here's what I'm going to do. So I said, why don't you look at these and then craft what you want to do? So she came back to me and she goes, dad, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon and, my, and I really like to write and my part-time I'm going to have a blog and I'm going to be a blogger in my part-time and I'll still get my creative juices flowing. So the story does not end where you think it ends. My daughter then goes to school and she does great until she gets to organic chemistry. And like a lot of people that have done this, every doctor in your audience is going, yup, I know what you're talking about. It hammered her and she got washed out and she actually came back and she goes, dad, I'm going to go into journalism. <laughs> But listen to how cool this is. She knows the ROI now. She goes, I know I'm going to have to out hustle people. I know it's going to be really rough. And I'm looking forward to that challenge. So instead of going into the job, like a lot of new people Why? that I've worked with, where they just immediately get buzzsawed, my daughter goes in and she just is ready. I will outwork you. I will find words that you can't use. I'll do all these different things. I'll make these. Th and she's been very successful. Amazing. Uh, well, listen, college. you don't know this, right? I was pre-med when I went to college. Oh, yeah. I lasted two semesters. And then I was like, man, this, I can't do this. This is not for me. I started adding up how much schooling I was going to need, how much money I was going to need to pay that. And I was like, you know what? I have the most credits towards math. I'm going to be a math major. And then I sorted it out where I am today. And I've been with it ever since. So uh, it works. Yeah. It works. But yeah. it, it's, a again, a difference making an educated decision versus one that you're just kind of flying blind on, right? So one of the things I've heard you say is about you back in the 1990s, you were living a sham, quote unquote. Can you tell our listeners what that was all about? Well, as I alluded to earlier, I was counseling people about their money. I'm giving them, Larry, these fantastic tips about how to manage their money, and I'm not following any of them myself. I am horrible with credit cards. I am rotten with my bank account. I'm overspending. And by the way, there's a couple of myths that I was living that I see people still out living. Let me tell you one of these, and that's that you can earn your way out of bad money habits. It didn't matter how much money I made. I think right. my first year as a financial planner, I made uh, $90,000. I spent $110,000. <laughs> if I would have made $120,000, I would have spent $140,000. If I would have made $35,000, I would have spent $40,000. I could not manage or earn my way out of bad habits. And so the first thing you got to do is figure out how to lock down your budget. But oh my God, because of the fact, and by the way, not ripping on my parents, my parents taught me hustle and how to be smart about stuff. And this is on me, even though we didn't talk about money. Most families don't. I remember I was at this college. I went to the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina. Yep. And this is how bad I was with money, just as an example. And I could tell you stories all day, but this, <laughs> is, this was kind of the beginning of the snowball, Dave Ramsey snowball going the wrong way. Was uh, so I'm first time away from home, never been allowed to handle any money. And by the way, military college, South Carolina, these are two things that are going to come up later yep. <laughs> in our story. So I'm going to okay. give, you, give you a little foreshadowing. I walk into the first week of school into Mark Clark Hall, our student union, and there's this line, right? And it's a line. I don't remember if they were giving away stadium blankets or if they were giving <laughs> away frisbees or pizza or whatever it was, but I went and stood in the line. And it's amazing because you know, I'm in line for an American Express card for a credit card. Another offshoot, by the way, I became a spokesperson for American Express and the financial planning side, which right. I don't think they did their homework because if they would have <laughs> looked, looked they would have heard this story, they would have never had me do any of that stuff. But 
That was much later. But but at the time, uh, I get in this line to get myself an American Express card because it seems really cool, whatever they're giving away. The number of people, by the way, that stand in line for debt, or it always amazes me. I go to a mall where you got a bunch of stuff that's in this mall that frankly, and to put it very bluntly, Larry, all this stuff is going to end up in a landfill someday. Yeah, I mean, it's just horrible. And we do this for fun. Look at all, you know, which is the consumerism is just strong in us. So I, I get to the head of the line. If there was a line that was for financial planners that was a mile long, that would be awesome. But right. in this case, it's just for the credit card. Yeah. I, I get to the front. It says, how much money do you make? Zero. Like, I can't make any money. I am marching. <laughs> I'm in a military college. I make no money. What are your assets? I have no assets. I have nothing. Zero. And you know what happened? About six weeks later, maybe four <laughs> weeks later, this green card comes in the mail. Wow. I now have an American <laughs> Express card. So the first time we get leave on a Saturday, we go to North Charleston to this mall and we go to this really high-end restaurant. You might be familiar with this place. It was called Ruby Tuesday. There very high-end. Yes. Very high-end. Uh, they had a salad bar, right? Well, I don't know if they have it anymore post-COVID. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> salad bar night might not be what used to be. At that time, it was good. Now, right. maybe we need a bigger sneeze guard. I don't know. But anyway, so uh, the bill comes at the end. I've known these 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 people for like six weeks, and I want to be friends with them. So the the waiter brings the bill, and I raise this green card in the air, and I go, I got this. And they're like, what? I'm like, this is on me, man. This is on me. You didn't even play credit card roulette with the other participants, huh? You just took it all upon yourself. (laughs) It was all on me, seven of us. And I paid for it all. By the way, never once did it cross my mind. How the hell am I going to pay for this? Didn't do it at all. I walked down then to the other end of the mall. And I go to the most expensive store because I'm like a magnet for stupid money decisions. I go to Nordstrom. And there is this mannequin that has... Uh, has a sweater on it and it's this Duran Duran it's 1987 so it's this Duran Duran beautiful sweater like it's got Mm -hmm. this paisley thing and the v-neck and uh, I still have it in the other room because I remind myself of what an idiot I was (laughs) and I buy it I'm in Charleston good to have too by the way those reminders (laughs) keeps you honest I'm in Charleston South Carolina though Larry why the hell do I need a sweater I have no idea why you know two cold days I'm gonna wear this thing they might ship you off somewhere that you might need it just in case you never know yes that's right uh so uh I don't know about you know three weeks later um I go to Mark Clark Hall and this is back before email once again old guy story and I see you know, you walk in and your mailbox has this little glass on the front of it. And yeah. you always get excited when you got mail. Because as a cadet, you never got mail. So I walk in, I see there's this letter for me. Oh, this is cool. I open up my little mailbox. It's from my good friends at American Express. I love these people. These are my people. <laughs> they let me spend their money. Like, how great is this? Right. And then I open up. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they have for me. Maybe like a special bonus. Maybe a thank you. Maybe, maybe got upgraded to the black card. Probably. <laughs> Why not? No, these people that I thought were friends of mine are asking me for cash and they want me to pay this bill. And if you remember, you know, the green card, you got to pay for it all. Right. There's no interest rate that you pay for it all right now by the next cycle. And so I have no money. I have no job. So I do what any sane person would do. I called my mom and I said, (laughs) mom, we've got a problem. Mom said, no, Joe, we don't have, we don't have anything. (laughs) You've got a problem. And so my credit was wrecked immediately. And yeah, I spent the whole next summer at my part-time jobs all summer working with a collection agency to pay it off. But that 
Believe it or not, that one touch of the stove was not it. I kept retouching the credit stove and touching it and touching it and touching it to the point that I got to this point where I'm a financial planner. I'm very successful as a financial pl- as a young financial planner, upcoming, everybody thinks I'm great, but I drive this really old minivan and I've made up a story for everybody that it's because of the fact that I want to be frugal with my money. It's because right. I had no credit. Like a buddy of mine, I came clean with and I told him, I said, hey man, I really need a new car because I have these young kids and I am really, this car is going to die anytime. And my buddy goes, car dealers give everybody credit. Like everybody, like your credit. I I go, you don't have any idea how bad my credit is. He's like, no, they give everybody. I'll tell you, Larry, I walked into the car dealer. Nope. The car dealer actually goes to run my credit after he shows up the car. Yes. I want this minivan. My kids will sit in the back. This will be awesome. Guy comes out and he's like, yeah, no, no, your credit is horrible. (laughs) Your credit is horrible. boy. But I got to the point where I'm counseling all these really good people and showing them and and people are having success. And I ran out of gas uh, across town. I had to dig in these uh, in these seats underneath the seats of the minivan. I found like 85 cents and I had to walk like a mile to a marathon station or mobile station. And I had to beg the guy to give me the the little plastic gas can. Because of the fact that he thought I was going to steal it from him. He was sure I was going to steal this gas can from him. Right. So I grabbed the gas can and, you know, there's this horrible statistic, which is kind of why I do what I do, which is in a recent thing called the secret financial lives of Americans. It's by a group called nonfiction research. And it says that of 330 million people in America, nearly half of us say that we've cried about our money. And that was the day that I cried about my money that I was so screwed. I had no credit, nowhere to go. I didn't even know what that 85 cents was going to make it home. I did make it home. Right. And obviously I'm here today. But that's when what changed for me was I then stopped cutting corners. I said, I got to get my budget together. I got to forget about all my creditors calling me every day and do what everybody else wants. I'm going to ignore them because my credit's already screwed. I'm going to lock down my spending. I'm going to get a healthy respect for a dollar. I'm going to go to all cash lifestyle. And for quite a while, that's what I did. And I'm going to surround myself, by the way, with better people when it came to money. So I re-examined right. my team and because I had a horrible accountant, I had a rotten uh, financial people around me and I redid my team. And the amazing thing is how quickly when you go into the boring part, like the super boring, build an emergency fund, stop using credit, you know, right. live within your means, all these things. I got it together in like four years, like so mm-hmm. quickly for a guy that had like $85,000 in debt. I got together really quickly, like, bam. You were very motivated and, you you know, you took the opposite side, which is correcting the issue where, you know, a lot of people just kind of get on that hamster wheel and unfortunately can't find their way off, right? You mentioned you, you were very successful as a financial planner, right? So what what was the impetus behind selling your practice at the age of 40? I think you, you right around the time you crossed about 60 million under management. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many families you were serving at that point, but what was the impetus for leaving the business at that point? Yeah, I was 16 years in. I had about 125 families I worked with. And I get this letter from a dude in the organization, and it's it's his notice that he's leaving. And the type of organization that Ameriprise Financial was, you didn't give notice. You like left it. It was like Jerry Maguire. Remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Yeah. It was, it was, you leave at midnight, Larry, with the client files. And then at 6 a.m., everybody's <laughs> calling, right? To see right. which way the client goes. Like it was that type of, of, of a company. And Chris gives us this great letter that says, listen, I really like financial planning. I don't love it. I feel blessed that I was able to save some money and I have a nice foundation. 
but I need to know what I really want to do. And I spend so much time serving other people and other things that I don't really know about me. I don't know what I want to do. And he said, I think I have other mountains to climb was the quote. So he, by the way, we thought he was being metaphorical. He wasn't. He went and climbed Everest (laughs) twice. He climbed almost all the high peaks around the world. He now runs an adventure travel company in Boulder. The dude's amazing. But not just me, but a lot of us, like, you know, we took an introspective turd and at 39 years old, I looked inward really for one of the first times in my life and says, and said, okay, I'm, you know, at 39, maybe hopefully fingers crossed around halfway done. Is this what I want to do forever? Is this really my forever plan? And the practice right. now is going great. My practice is, is going great. My financial situation's really great. But I said, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. Like, I'm, I'm like Chris. I like it. I don't love it. I love talking about money with people. I love the PR type stuff I was doing. Sitting down one-on-one with families, I think is why I lost all my hair. It, it, <laughs> it was so great, but I felt like sometimes I cared more than they did. I felt like there right. were times when I, every time, every downturn in the market I took personally, And it was just, oh man. So I sold my business to go become a high school teacher, English teacher, and a track coach because I had run track and cross country while I was at the Citadel and in college. And I was so bored in school that uh, friends were asking me because of my PR background and my writing background to write scripts when they were on TV, like they were financial planners on TV in various markets or or they had client newsletters and they didn't want to write them and I would write their client newsletters. So I do the math and I'm sitting at home in shorts and a t-shirt when I'm between classes doing this stuff. And I'm making far more per hour than I would as a teacher, which God bless teachers, by the way, God bless teachers. And I'm teaching the topic I really enjoyed, which was money. And so that became a blog. The blog then became a podcast about 10 and a half years ago. And, and here we are today. I finally made it to the Midland Money Mindset Show. That's there like, you go. Well, yes. thank you for being here. <laughs> and now, and now you wrote this book again, going back to those English roots, right? You finally became an author too. So maybe, maybe you're trying to knock out all those professions <laughs> that you were thinking about doing before you went into financial services. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. But what prompted you to write Stack? What was the impetus behind that? And what do you want readers to get out of that book? You know, there's a couple things. Well, first of all, I've always thought that I had a book in me, probably because of the English background. And I wrote one, Larry, it took me about the whole 10 years we had our podcast. And there's a couple of great things I think we can all learn, if, even if we're not, don't have a book. And number one was something I alluded to earlier, surround yourself with good people and surround yourself with people, by the way, that have your back. And that means they will give you the unvarnished truth sometimes. They have a little bit of a Gordon Ramsay in them. You know, you watch Gordon Ramsay, and I think a lot of people, when they casually watch his stuff, they see him screaming and yelling, and they're like, oh my... But Gordon Ramsay, why does he scream and yell? He wants these restaurants to succeed, right? He truly yeah, he's a wants passionate them. guy. Yes. He's on their team and he gets angry because he's on their team. So I try to surround myself with those types of people. I think a lot of us over the short run, we want people around us that tell us we're great, we're good, we're whatever. I want people that love me but have my back. So I finished this manuscript finally after 10 years. I hand it to one of those people, my spouse, Cheryl. And Cheryl holds onto it for maybe 18 minutes before she goes, this sucks. Like wow. it was, it was Joe's kind of braggy. It was like, Joe's really good with money. And it was very voice of authority. And it's not at all fun and inviting, which is what I try to do. I, I want to make it so that right. this is easier than you think. You do need smart people in your corner. You need to surround yourself with good people, but you also need to understand it yourself. You got to understand the basics so that you- At least the know, baseline knowledge. Yes. Absolutely. You know where your plan's going. So 
I'm like, all right. So I tossed that. I literally took that manuscript and I cut it up into pieces and started putting it out on like our blog and our newsletter and stuff, but that was going nowhere. So now I know I still have a book, but I need something that's campier, more fun, like the podcast is. And I'm walking through a bookstore and I come across the Hardy Boys Detective Manual. Are you, are you familiar with this book? I am. I'm not familiar with that book, but I know the Hardy Boys. And I definitely yes. had, as a kid, I had the Hardy Boys hard copy, hardcover yes. books, the so whole series. They have the series, but then they have a guide to be a detective. Like this is not okay. a story. It's how to be a detective. And you open it up to the front cover inside of the front cover. And it says, this is written with the help of a real live FBI agent. And I remember <laughs> I'm in fourth grade and I tell my brother, Tony, I'm like, this is legit. We could be FBI agents. Like we could be <laughs> detectives. My mom touches a door handle and we go over there with the tape. <laughs> we're, we're getting her fingerprints off of it. My dad leaves for work and it's a muddy day and we're looking at, you know, the perpetrator and how they're, <laughs> you know, the tire tracks. Like we're doing all the stuff. And I thought at this bookstore, I picked it up again because I remember how lovingly I carried this thing around. I'm like, if I could get adults to carry around a money book the same way I carried around the Hardy Boys Detective Manual, like that would be amazing. So then I got this idea for kind of how it's going to go, but I don't have a, I, I don't have a structure yet. So right. I thought about different structures and my mom at 50 one weekend, she had a key to our house while we were away. She was feeding the cat for us. And she brings over this box of stuff from her attic. I have no idea why she still has like my little league photos. Like mom, why are you holding on to those till I'm 50? I got no oh, idea. My dad dropped those off of my house a couple of years ago. He came, he was cleaning out his house. So he came with a few box to mess my house up a little bit. So, of course. Yeah, right? I, yes. I get it. Yeah. Yes. But in this box of random stuff, was the Cub Scout Wolf Guide. And what I love, and I know from listening to you, Larry, that you love the same stuff. If you turn it into a game a little bit, you will lower the temperature because most stuff, don't get me wrong, there's a few things that are irrevocable that you got to right. get right. But those are yep. few and far between. Most of the time, it's better to go mess it up. Go try to open a Roth IRA. Go open a savings account. Try this stuff. Just go hey, do listen, it. Hey, listen, I opened up. I, I don't know a lot about crypto and NFTs. This this past year, I bought a little crypto. Not a lot, bought a little just so I can get acclimated to it. I bought an NFT, not an expensive one, just so I could get acclimated to it. If they both go to zero, it's not going to change my life, but Absolutely. I have an a vested interest to learn about it now. And Absolutely. I think that's what you're kind of referring to, right? Yes. And so what I love about what the Cub Scouts did was they were creating these games before you and I, before these, you know, fintech creators that turn everything into a game on our phones. Like right. they had everything is an achievement. It's not a chapter. <laughs> it's an achievement. And the easy achievements are at the beginning. The tough achievements are at the end of the wolf guide. And it tells you what you're going to need. It succinctly tells you what to do. At the bottom of each achievement, there's checkboxes because it's not about what you know. And this dr drove me crazy when I was a financial planner. The no it still drives me crazy. The number <laughs> of people that know a ton and do nothing with it right. drives me nuts. I absolutely, it's so frustrating. Like you have all this knowledge and you just do nothing. So it's not about that. It's about doing something. And so we have these checkboxes when you actually do the stuff in the chapter. And then there's a little box for your mom to sign it and you get your badge, right? Mm. So we did the same thing in Stacked. So that was the deal with Stacked. And we say super serious guide to money management. I think you can tell when somebody's taking the Hardy Boys detective manual 
and combining <laughs> it with a Cub Scout Wolf Guide. And there's achievements from easy to tough money stuff all the way throughout. It's not that serious. It's very legit. Obviously, we want to put great advice in there. We talk at the end about making sure, like I had to, that you surround yourself with good people. Because this right. myth, Larry, ever since I changed over to the financial media side, I've heard this straw man argument, which is, well, you're smart enough to do this yourself. Duh, of course you are. Yes, right. you are. It's not about being smart enough. And you're also emotional enough to mess it up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> we all have blind spots, like surround yourself with really smart people and still know what you're doing. You cannot abdicate. If you abdicate, you're messing it up. But you can delegate the crap that people with time and expertise can do quicker than you. And you'll have people to fight with you about what the right way, which you want. You right. want people to fight Agreed. with you. So, yeah. Agreed. Hey, I think this kind of segues nicely into talking about voices in finance and in financial services. You know, you talk about having as many voices as possible in personal finance. Why is that so important to you? And, and what do you mean by that? Oh, it's so frustrating for me. I always hear from people that are like, well, I think I might want a podcast, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You can take your show, my show, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, whatever the hell she's working on, Clark Howard. You can take all of the financial shows together. Over 330 million people in the United States. Dave Ramsey's show is the biggest when it comes to just podcasts. And he doesn't publish his numbers, but most people estimate it's between a million and two million per episode. But anyway, you could take all of us and there's maybe 25 million people listening, maybe out of 330 million people. Right. There's nobody listening to financial talk. And yet that stat, Larry, that I said earlier, half of us are crying about our money. There's so many places to go. Like, why are we crying about our money when there's podcasts, there's books, there's blogs, there's all kinds of wonderful resources. There are great people out there and we're still leaving people behind. And I think it's because we have a big problem when it comes to CFPs. A lot of the CFPs, I don't remember the number, but I think it's like a third of the CFPs out there are going to retire in the next 10 years. A third are going to retire. We need more young people that are becoming CFPs. Number two is the representation of, as an example, black men in this industry is absolutely anemic. Like if black families are going to build intergenerational wealth, they need more professionals that look like them, right? And you can say that for the Latino community. You can I say agree. that for the... So we just need people to share their voice, no matter who you are. Because people are like, well, everybody's saying all this stuff. Yeah, but nobody can say your journey. And you've got a different journey than somebody else has. So I really want to see as many new creators as, as possible. Like go out there and just try it. Tell people your story. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked. I have a uh, young gentleman, Jarrell, who works for me. He happens to be black. And when he told me that he informed me that somewhere in the neighborhood of like less than 2% of CFPs are black. Yeah. It was like, really? I yeah. never even thought that. The, I knew the number was low, but I did not realize or think that it was that low. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And that's a huge miss on the uh, the part of our industry for sure, or our profession, I should say. And what I've believed, because, you know, I get up on stages at industry events and with black creators and they talk about spreading the message and we need more black creators. And I've said very publicly, it's like people like you and I that also need to have more black people on our shows. We need to make sure that we have people, not just black people, but people just from all different different places, you know? I mean, I don't want it to be 
like a corporate stupid checkbox of multiculturalism. <laughs> right. Right. But I do think that if we one day we feature and this is what I love about your show. And we I said this to you before we started recording. I love your show because you come at it from all these different angles. And I think that that attracts an audience of people that are different, that are that are, you know, you're more likely right. to stumble upon somebody that sounds more like you. And it's pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I have to congratulate you. I mean, listen, your show and, and you know what you've created is something that I emulate and, and look to achieve. You just passed a thousand episodes, crossing 30 million downloads for Stacking Benjamins. I mean, can you first tell us, I mean, how did the podcast come to be? Was it an act of necessity or you just were getting the traction with the blog and then moved into that direction? How did that come to be? I mean, you've had a lot of success for sure. Well, thank you. I was told for a long time that I should have a podcast because so I did PR for American Express and then for Ameriprise and I was on TV in Detroit. I did, I was one of 12 people that did national media. I love the media part, right? I always thought that part Mm -hmm. was fun. And so when people knew I listened to podcasts back in the early days of podcasting, they would always say at parties that you should have a podcast, (laughs) you should have a podcast. And I would always respond, Larry, I'd say, I don't want to be Dave Ramsey. I don't want to be Susie Orman. I don't want to yell at people about their money. It just is not what, and at the time that was pretty much the only people that were doing this stuff, right? You had Kramer screaming his head off. (laughs) You, you had Susie really the only person that was kind of a voice of reason, Clark Howard, you know, not yelling at people, but on the major, you know, the major people. So one day I was actually mowing my lawn and I'm listening to this NPR show called car talk. And for those people that don't know Car Talk, do you know Car Talk? I am not familiar with that. I don't believe it's these brothers. They call themselves Click and Clack. One of them died uh, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, but they still play the old episodes because they're so good. And I laugh my head off about Car (laughs) Talk. I mean, you know, they have their sponsor list and their sponsors are Dewey Cheatham and Howe and, uh, you know, all the bad dad (laughs) jokes like they do them all. People call in and they, they ask them, and they have these very strong New York accents, which are just... Oh, hey, giving us a bad name. Eh? Oh, no, no, no. It's a great name. <laughs> I just love, as a guy that's lived in the South and in the Southeast and in Charleston and I've lived all kinds of places, like hearing the differences, living next to Canada was really yeah. fun too. But they're like, so come on, tell us what, what the car sounds like. What does the car sound like? And they make their listeners go, well, it sounds like... and they're making all these great and i'm laughing my head off and then i realized larry for the first time i have this big aha and i remember exactly where i was by my on my lawn i'm not learning crap about a car i listen to this show all the time i'm learning zero about a car but car culture seems fun it seems interesting I come back for more i'm not afraid of cars anymore you know i wasn't afraid of cars before but i still you know i'm like ooh, that's you know, there's some osmosis going on, but I really don't feel like I'm learning. I feel like I'm just having a great time. And I'm like, I want to make that show. Like that <laughs> is what I want to do, which is why, you know, we call Stacking Benjamins the greatest money show on earth because it's a circus. And that's our goal is not really to, don't get me wrong, I want to teach you stuff, but the science of play makes learning so much easier. Let me give you a, a, yeah. a stat I just heard. It takes about 4,000 repetitions to get something through your head, right? To make it a thing. 4,000. 4,000. It takes between 40 and 80 if you turn it into a game. Just turn it into a game. And I mean, huge difference, huge difference. difference in time. So 
You know, some people, if you see the reviews of our show, we don't have many bad reviews, but the bad review we get is the same bad review over and over. And it's from these extreme money nerds that are like, right. you guys got to quit screwing around. I'm not going to quit screwing around. <laughs> no. I want the important stuff. I do. The How do I make money? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And for me, the important thing is if we screw around and you're having fun, you're more likely to learn something. But the funny thing is we've, because of that, studied comedy for a long time. So I think the key to our success lately has been that for the past about seven years, we've been huge students of comedy because we've been guys that know money for 35 years. Right. But I didn't know comedy and it's harder than we thought. So I would imagine. I mean, so, I mean, is that the important thing to being a successful podcaster? Do you think it is to make it a fun environment to attract people? You don't necessarily have to really be this educational institution per se. You really want to just drum up the interest in the person so that they could kind of go maybe look into it a little bit more or they hear a topic and their their takeaway is, oh, you know, I don't know about that. Let me dive a little bit deeper somewhere else. Is that what you think really being a successful yeah. podcaster is all about? Yeah, I don't know. You know, what's funny is like, I don't want people to listen to this and think I got to be hilarious or I got to be funny or tell a bunch of dad jokes or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. Because if you're a serious person, I do think it's, I hate that we're being, a, you know, the phrase be authentic. It makes me want right. to throw up in my mouth a little bit, <laughs> but you really do have to be you. You have to know your voice and it has to be you, which means I think you have to have something to say. And the thing that I've always wanted to say is that play is a better way to learn about money. Messing it up is a better way. Getting educated and going and doing some stuff is a better way. So you got to have something really strong that you want to say. And then you have to realize that even if your show is very serious about the topic, that to some degree, no matter how serious your show is, people do listen for entertainment value to right. some degree, right? Because they only have so much time. Like I listen to some shows like Tim Ferriss show, as an example, I'll listen mm -hmm. to. And while he will do these deep dives that we will never do on Stacking Benjamins, right. I do listen because I find Tim to ask inquisitive, entertaining questions. And he gets these great answers that I find entertaining, but also feed my brain at the same time. But if they fed my brain and I was falling asleep, yep. I wouldn't come back for more. Yeah, it's it's tough. I think it's a fine line, right? You got you to gotta kind of compete in both areas. Agreed. And you know, it depends on some days I want that deep dive because I have the bandwidth to do it. And other days I'm like, I just want to, I just want to listen to a mindless show and have a good time and the story. You know, I don't, I don't need to learn anything in the next <laughs> half hour. I just want to get a smile across my face. That's about it. Yes. So, I mean, one thing you're really good at, obviously, from even your time here is telling stories, right? Why are stories so powerful? I mean, we talk about them all the time and we use them in our practice, right? Because telling stories, like going back to the college ROI, I tell the story of my own family. My, my oldest son is going into his sophomore year of college and I tell them how we handled his college situation and how we approach that just at a high level. Our kind of game plan as a family very early on was we told him that we would spend the equivalent of a state university for his college education. And if he did that, then he would come out debt-free. He ended up finding a university that was about $15,000, $20,000 more after he got a scholarship than what our arrangement was or our financial plan was. And basically, we looked at the return on investment. The program that he was going into had a, uh, the school had a program where it was a co-op program. So going back to your daughter, it was a five-year college program. You only pay for four years of school. But three semesters or three six-month periods, he's a W-2 employee 
for a company in the field that he's thinking about going into. Wow. So so we were like, hey, there's a lot of real value there. Could save him from taking a misstep and going into a job, a career that he doesn't want to be in. And he made the case for spending extra money. So we did that. And I talk about that all the time. And I think those stories are powerful. I mean, what do you find the benefit of sharing? You know, obviously you share your own family stories also, which I think are powerful as well. How do you find it? I find it like you, incredibly powerful and way more powerful than experts. I mean, for for our show. Quote unquote experts. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, an expert comes on and they give you do this, do that, do this, do that. That, that, No, no. I want to hear these stories about how stuff got in your way and you were able to find a way around it. Like you were able to get out of adversity. But I think as I'm listening to your question, Larry, I'm thinking about the fact that stories are just innate. I mean, stories are the way that we banded together even when we were hunters and gatherers, you know? And before formal education, humans would share stories to pass messages down from generation to generation. So I believe stories are how we're hardwired, just as Mm -hmm. humans. And so the more stories we can hear, I mean, there's nothing more fun for me than a case study. Like, I love case studies about businesses and about right. how businesses succeed, how they don't succeed. These And these books that are parables, right? Like, The E-Myth is a great mm-hmm. parable. Awesome. The Richest Man in Babylon, like a fantastic parable. These are timeless uh, things, I think, because that's the way that we are wired. And I think, by the way, I think there's something to be said, and I'm going to turn this into a little tangent. I think there's something else with how we're hardwired, which is... If we're born with sight, you know, most people are born with sight, you immediately from the time you're born, you have spatial awareness. I'm here, you're there, you know, this light behind me is over there. So immediately, and you're now it's, it's uh, subconscious. You're just like, oh, right. I got to be this far away from my microphone. I got to have this here. I got to have that there. That's why I like the same thing, because this also goes back to hunter gatherer days of don't write down your goals, timeline them. I love taking your goals and putting them on a timeline. So that right. you see them and the spatial recognition between them. And then you also see the the need back to today. Like, how much money do I need to save for it? What return do I need to get that goal? And then how are they going to work, you know, with each other? When I was a financial planner, I would do this all the time. And, you know, I would be the first one to point out that your retirement goal is your kid's junior year in college. <laughs> it doesn't matter, by the way. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can do it, right? You can do it, right. but there's definitely going to be at least a couple of years there where we're going to have a little friction. And if mm-hmm. we know it 15 years ahead of time versus trying to figure it out a year ahead or two years ahead, we're much better. We're much more likely to have a plan that works. So, yeah. And I mean, I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you're familiar with Gino Wickman from yes. EOS and yeah. Traction. Yeah. You know, he talks about people as a, as a, in a general sense have a tendency to overestimate what they can do in one year, but underestimate what they can do in 10. Yeah. And that's why it's so powerful sometimes to think in those larger blocks, because although you have these goals, whatever they may be, you may not be able to do it in a year, but in 10, you probably have a better shot. If, if you're thinking you can get it done, you'll probably get it done sooner than that. If it's, if it's on the radar, if it's on your timeline, like you mentioned, I think it gives you that visual. This is actually, Larry, I'm glad you brought that up because this is also why I like milestones. Because if you've got this long goal, if you're listening to this and you're 28, 29 years old, and you're saving for retirement, like that seems forever away. Yes. But if you build these signposts along the way, like a highway has, you know, we would always, I live in Texarkana, Texas, which is right on the border. And if you're coming from the Northeast into Texas, you're on a road trip, you're going to come through my town. 
Our town for a town of 60,000 people has a ton more hotel rooms than most towns. And the reason is people have a milestone of, I'm going to reach the Texas border and then we'll stop for the night, right? Right. So they end up stopping in Texarkana. I love those milestones that, hey, we made it to this spot. And so don't just have that big retirement goal, but have this goal of, hey, if I make it to $100,000 when I'm X number of years old, that's where I need to be to get this much bigger goal later on. Like build these yeah, I, small yeah, you celebrations. Gotta, you got to have something that you can kind of work towards because if you start putting that mountain of 40 years down the road, it ain't never going to happen. You can't think in a four. Nobody can think in a 40-year increment. And I guarantee you, no matter what you have planned out for 30 or 40 years from now, chances are it's not going to work out the way you expect it to. Because there's just change. Too, too, too many things that are going to change. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, listen, it, it's been awesome having you on, and I want to be respectful of your time, Joe. But at the same time, this is the Midland Money Mindset. And as you know, we ask <laughs> each of our guests the same question at the end. It's the only question we keep the same, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy, because we're all about joy here, and put you in the right mindset for success? I will tell you, and this is just going to go back to my original story, because I knew this was coming. I'm like, what am I going to say? And I actually had something else. <laughs> But because we're recording on a Monday, I begin every week by meeting with my coach, Mary Lou. And Mary Lou and I at 7.30 in the morning on Mondays, I just have my coffee on, I have her on Zoom, and we plot out my week. And I have to tell you that this is far more serious than what I was going to say earlier, but it does give me huge joy. It gives me joy that I don't need to think the rest of the week. I just do. I'm just going to do. And it's you're so back to your planner roots again. Maybe you're going to be opening up a financial planning practice <laughs> oh God, all no, over again. Please no. You've gone full no, circle. No, back away. <laughs> Satan, please. Come on. You said planning brings you a lot of joy. You know what you're going to do. It's, yes. I, I heard it. I heard it. Uh, uh, that, listen, that's a great way to start the week. I, I appreciate that. And I, I do something similar. I, I plan things out as well, because not only am I a planner on the financial side with the families we serve, but... I'm a planner in life. I need to know where I'm going and what I got to do. If I'm not really that spontaneous most of the time, I can be occasionally. But so listen, Joe, if people want to learn more about you, find the show, find the book stacked. We're going to have all your information in the show notes. But what's the easiest and best place for them to do that? Yeah. If you, uh, you know, go to our website, stackybenjamins.com. You'll find the podcast. You'll find links to the book. You get the books available everywhere. It's from Penguin Random House, world's biggest publisher. So, uh, yeah, just, uh, hit me up there. Say hi to me. Average Joe Money on Twitter is a good place. Our Instagram channel is a lot of fun. Stacking Benjamins on Instagram. Awesome. Well, listen, Joe, thanks again for being a guest. I appreciate it and, uh, make it a great day. Thanks a ton, Larry. I want to thank Joe Saul Cihai for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. The Stacking Benjamins show is a testament to the thirst for knowledge people have regarding financial information and entertainment. What a success it has been thus far. Joe is definitely a true entrepreneur, and it took him some time to find his way. Once he found his passion and followed it, his success began to shine. Joe and the Stacking Benjamin Show can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website 
or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.